Outrider podcast, Bad Business, is a six-part series about crime and detective fiction. I'm joined by a pair of shady figures, my friends Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. So come with us as we descend into the seedy underbelly of fiction, where charming crooks, hard-boiled detectives, and femme fatales are all up to some very bad business. Welcome to episode two of the Outrider podcast, our, our bad business episode. I guess that's what we're going to call it. Um, so I'm here with Todd and Paul again, and, and Todd's going to give us a little bit about Dashiell Hammett and, and get us started on our discussion. <laughs> so we're going to roll it right away with uh, Todd. Take it away. Dashiell Hammett. Well, you changed writers Dashiell on Hammett. <laughs> Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett. Jeez, the okay. two are yeah. often Raymond Chandler. in the same category. Right. So. Chandler would no doubt have had some kind of a sardonic remark about that. But. So a couple of points came up just as I was reviewing, really. It was Tom Heine's biography of Chandler that came out probably 10, I don't remember. It came out in the last 20 years, put it like that. So Chandler, um, a couple of points seemed to have affected his outlook and his writing. Um, you know, his, he had an American father who was a, an abusive alcoholic. His mother was Irish, Anglo-Irish, I guess they, they mean by that, Protestant. But in any case, age 12, Chandler is uh, forever estranged from his father. He and his mother moved back to the UK. And soon enough, he's, Chandler is age 12 down in London, enrolled at Dulwich College. Um, at under the financial purview of an uncle. And it was at Dulwich College that he came under the influence of the kind of a charismatic headmaster. This gentleman's name was uh, Gilkes. And he was famous and he's been written about by several other people. His, his themes were morality, one, so immediately we think of uh, Marlowe's mor- his code. Two, Englishness, and three, intellect. And so we've, we begin to see that, uh, you know, this Gilkes guy may have in some way filled the vacuum of male authority and wisdom for Chandler. Um, it's also noteworthy that at the time, basically in the same time frame, a couple of other famous writers came out of Dulwich, Col- Dulwich College, P.G. Wodehouse and uh, C.S. Forrester, who wrote those Hornblower novels. And Heine points out that uh, Gilkes had always uh, tutored these guys to watch for pretentiousness. I don't know what that means exactly. It's just his code. But you can see Gilkes's code in, in Jeeves, Hornblower, and Marlowe to an extent you know, the distinct male hero, men of integrity driven by a decency beyond the call of duty. Uh, The sense of honor gets all three of these characters in and out of trouble. Um, In any case, Chandler, he lives in England until he's 24, and he's trying to make a go of it as a writer back then, kind of from a different angle. I think, wasn't he trying to be a poet? Yes. He was trying to be a poet. And he came out when he decides to move back to America, Heine found a really cool quote. Chandler said uh, he was he was through being counted among the worn intellectuals with cigarette coughs and no money in the bank. <laughs> so he comes back to America, and on the steamer heading for America, he runs into the uh, the Lloyd family from L.A. Uh-huh. and they were oil tycoons, but Ivy Leaguers, and they hit it off with Chandler, even though he was a young guy. They liked him, and they had some things in common. They were avant-garde, very generous. So Chandler makes that connection with them on the steamer, and they must have extended some kind of an invitation to come see them in L.A. 
that the door would be open, something along those lines. He did go to San Francisco first, and he spent some time there kind of knocking around with odd jobs. Not very long, though, you know, a few months, maybe a year, somewhere in there. And Heine, Heine suggests that if there's a time when uh, Chandler sort of lives like Marlowe, it was in San Francisco. The, the idea of being kind of friendless, moneyless, smart, but without any prospects. <laughs> he got tired of that soon enough, went to L.A., mm-hmm. reconnected with the Lloyds, and mm-hmm. they, they connect him to a job at a creamery being an accountant. And he did that for about four years. He wasn't making a lot of money. But it was a steady job. But Chandler, the whole writing theme comes back, and he feels like he's wasting his life there. Right. World War One is kicking in. Chandler signs up with the Canadian, a branch of the Canadian Army, and he ends up in Europe. And he really did get into the the military conflict there. He was in the he saw the bad stuff right. in Europe. Uh, so at, he goes through the military conflict. When he gets out of the war, he comes back to L.A. And by then, he's fallen in love with uh, Sissy, Sissy Pascal, who was this... Chandler, by the time he gets back to L.A., is 31. And Sissy was 40. She was, what, 10 years older, somewhere in there. And uh, she was a stepmother of a friend of his from the Lloyd Circle. In any case, he you know he marries her, and it, they basically had a pretty good relationship, I think, you know, as much as you can with Chandler, who starting with the war, had started to pick up his dad's booze hound habits. Right. And, and so that kind of continued for the rest of his life. And it becomes a factor soon enough when he gets back on with the Lloyd family, this time in the oil business, right. age 31. <laughs> he becomes a junior accountant and quickly smokes out a, an embezzlement scheme being, being perpetrated by the chief executive of the company, uh, chief accounting executive of the company, and um, so, you know, he, he goes to trial with the DA and actually feeds the DA the questions that need to be asked of this senior executive of Dabney, Dabney Oil. And thereby, I mean, Chandler becomes the chief accountant at right. Dabney, gets himself <laughs> a nice big raise. The roaring 20s are kicking in. Chandler's sitting there with his cushy gig. He's got his wife. He's he's good to go, correct? Well, uh, it doesn't take long until he's disenchanted with the Dabney oil gig again. He feels like this theme of he feels like he's wasting his time kicks back in. He starts to have trouble going to sleep at night. So the booze really, by the end of the uh, roaring 20s, the booze is taking over Chandler's day-to-day living. Right. Hines points out that Chandler, you know, he he's not coming to the office until Wednesday, which I mean <laughs> any what American, what writer anywhere would not be unhappy with that scenario, but uh so I mean we know how that's gonna turn out. If you don't come in till Wednesday, even if you're the chief executive, you get fired. And so Chandler aged he's in his early forties, he gets fired and and uh, but that is the turning point in Chandler's writing life, right? Because that, when he was put out by Dabney in his early forties, was when he got serious about this detective novel thing this time around, right? And he starts, he becomes part of. You mentioned Hammett at the outset. He becomes part of that hard-boiled crime novel or crime short story writing thing that's being done. Hammett, Chandler, the Black Mask people. And that's right. that's Chandler's start. And so the mental approach that he adapts with Marlowe is one way to think about it. You know, he, he's when he was talking to a friend about the writing of The Long Goodbye, which was one of the later books, obviously, but he says that the, the mental approach that he needed for Marlowe was uh, dash and high spirits, gusto. And um, I thought of that when I was circling back to uh, what we mentioned at the last of the our previous mm-hmm. podcast when we were talking about John Gardner and that question, that 
point that John Gardner brings up about first-person narration. And we asked at the end of that other episode, is how is that applicable to Marlowe? You know, and just to, just to focus this question, Gardner says with the first-person narrator specializing in private vision, seeing clearly their own feelings, experience, prejudice. What counts is not that we believe in this private vision as a reader, but that we are sufficiently interested in the speaker that we're willing to follow him around. And so Marlowe is Marlowe is an interesting first-person narrator, I would say. Um, yeah. What, so what, it, you know, I, I've got a couple of things written down here, obviously, but... What uh, what do you think? Well, when I did my little brief little research, I, um, this in particular, because we are picking up late in his career with this, and this was the long goodbye, is is often called is his more his, one of his more personal, you know, reflective novels. Because this is kind of um, either just after his wife died, or it was, and he's really struggling with alcoholism with this, and and you actually have two characters that are kind of stand-ins for for Chandler with um, Wade. Lennox and Wade. And, and Lennox, you know, two sides of him. The, the writer who's questioning his, um, his you know, talent and his worth and his, his oeuvre and where it's, if he's got anything left in the tank, slowly destroying himself, which is what Chandler was doing at that point in his life, right? Yes. <clears throat> it's interesting that he pulled this out because you know, and still managed to maintain some sense of, of clarity in his, in his writing. So I've always been fascinated by this one because it's it, compared to the other ones that I've read, he has the most direct commentary on, on the world in, in the early 1950s. So, you know, you are getting a, that personal vision. You're getting that look at, and he's, he's totally disillusioned with the world. <laughs> Yes, he but he's putting it, he's putting that disillusionment in other characters and not Marlowe. Right. Although Marlowe has his moments too. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to pull off, I think, that, that he uses the Marlowe persona to sort of look at issues that are going on in his own life. And, and so the, the power of that is you're able to really step outside of yourself and step into this persona of Marlowe and, and attack these issues that he was dealing with from cynicism, a sense of failure, a sense of that the world was uh, much more imperfect than he had thought it was going to be. Right. Um, and look at that from an objective perspective with this created persona that he had going on. Gosh, how long had he been doing Marlowe? Just 10 well, if he starts in the early 30s and, you know, so 20, 10 to 20 years. 20 years almost of, right. of, of being Philip Marlowe or stepping into Philip Marlowe's persona. Right. Well, and when we get to the, when we get to the prejudice of the first-person narrator and the, the personal bias mm-hmm. or the singular point of view, I mean... There are some really nice riffs in all throughout Chandler where Marlowe, and Paul is, and I have kind of had this side conversation going on about our, our own drafts of our own novels mm-hmm. and, and the step back. Right. In other words, the narrator is, he's describing what happened to him or he's involved just in describing a scene. Marlowe's describing who he talked to or where he went, but then there's these points where he steps back. Mm-hmm. Or we could call them asides, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think he's very good at these. And just to let me read just one sure. short paragraph. This is where Marlowe is talking about Harlan Potter, which is the the rich guy in the book that is pulling all the strings behind the scenes <laughs> and basically seems to have worked to get Terry get the murder hung on Terry Lennox because it was easy and the cops went for it because the guy's so powerful. So here's Marlowe on just rich guys in general. Guys with $100 million live a peculiar life. Behind a screen of servants, bodyguards, secretaries, lawyers, and tame executives. Presumably they eat, sleep, get their hair cut, and wear clothes, but 
you never know for sure. Everything you read or hear about them has been processed by a public relations gang of guys who are paid big money to create and maintain a usable personality. Something simple and clean and sharp, like a sterilized needle. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to be consistent with the known facts, and the known facts you can count on your fingers. No. And so there's a bunch of those little step backs in the book. And I think, I don't, you know, it's been a while since I've read a couple of the other books. This one seems to be pretty stocked with that stuff. It's been a while since I have too. Yeah. But that was a big reaction I had reading it this time was that this is a little bit of a different flavor of Chandler uh, than the early books. Right, yeah. Because he's he is pulling that distance. He's pulling focus out away from, you know, the, the immediate and the moment and and commenting rather than just delivering the narrative. I mean to a certain extent, you know, I think he does that in the other stuff, just not on such broad topics. Yeah, and I think it could be a product of Marlowe being a little more mature here. I think the Marlowe of the Big Sleep is a much more concentrated existential force. And the Marlowe of the Long Goodbye is a little more self-aware. It's almost like he kind of loses his battle with, his, with the moral code. He realizes the moral code that he holds is not going to exist in the external world. And that's what happens over the course of the Big Sleep. And this is a Marlowe who's doesn't expect the world to be that way. Mm-hmm. He has his own code, and he uh, comments on the status of society. But I almost get a sense of where, where the guys made, almost kind of made peace with that idea that society's crap. <laughs> well, you can kick it around. I mean, it's interesting to me that you're, possibly seeing kind of a change in perspective in Marlowe because to, and I think you're right when I was kicking it around in my own mind because he seems like he in my mind in some ways he just never changes he's just this guy he's got his code and he's going to stick to it and Terry Lennox might be might change his identity and sort of lose himself in that way for whatever reason maybe because he doesn't have the the backbone to stand up to these people or we can we can argue about or he's lost his nerve because he seems you know to have had that backbone at some point you know having been a war hero saved his friends but Mm -hmm. since then totally which seems like a totally logical progression for someone you know he's been through something traumatic to then just lose their nerve he was does it suggest in the book he was somehow broken by his his time in the German camp? I mean, I think that's what yeah, we're... possibly. It's floated that way. Yeah. They don't know. I mean, it's never talked about what actually happened, but, yeah, we assume he was he was tortured for right. a period Did of it, a year, I think it was. Just as an aside, okay, so Lennox begins as... Are we right that his first name was Paul Marston? Or was yeah. that a made-up name, too? Uh, I think Marston was a made-up name because that was what was on the the uh, the wedding certificate, and that had to be a fake name because he was in he was enlisted as Terry Lennox. Right. He couldn't, and they couldn't get married. That was right. the whole. So we don't even know what his name was, or was it Lennox? I'm suspecting he, it was it was Lennox, but you know, um, the military records you yeah. think would be would correspond. But I mean, it's always real identity. So yeah. he goes back to Lennox then when he comes to the West Coast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The only, th- maybe the only coincidence in the whole book, any, any novel like this is going to maybe have a few of these. It does seem to be a very small world that when Lennox gets to the West Coast, he's right in the circle with his ex-wife. Right. I mean, L.A. is a big town. <laughs> but... And somehow just, they both end up in this really exclusive neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, this down little the, circle of people. Right. And that does have to be just a coincidence, right? We, there's not anything implied there that she 
No, she's was, totally floored when she first sees him. Eileen is. That's what I got from yeah. it too. Yeah. So it is just a coincidence. Yeah, and it's one. I guess if there's a place where the book wants you to just not ask that question, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. Is this one of the ones where he cannibalized? I think that was his term. He he published all these short stories in the Black Mask over the years. He would take the plots of the short stories and string them together, several together, to, to make the plot of a novel. Huh. Is this one that he did that for? I, I want to say it I, is. I want to say he did that in all could, of them, but I... It wouldn't surprise I should me. have double-checked. But that, that's why you can't have some of these situations where, you know, this story connects to this other story. It's because the two of them at one point were separate, and he has to have a reason that the two come together. Right. Well, Heine does note that in keeping with Chandler's tradition of making a mistake or two in his plots, yeah, he had done it in The Big Sleep when yeah. they went to make the movie. They asked, I forget which what the plot point was, but they actually called Chauffeur. him. What did they ask? It was. It's not clear in the novel who actually kills the chauffeur. There's actually a <laughs> couple of people that could have done it. <laughs> right. And supposedly what Faulkner and Faulkner Wilder was or Brackett, on. Leah Brackett? I think Wilder's on it for sure. Okay. They got to the point where they were so frustrated they called Chandler on the phone and said, We don't know who killed the chauffeur. And Chandler was indignant. It's like, Read my book, you fools. But he and didn't they, know they, either. And they pressed him, and he finally went to the book and starts thumbing through the pages and says, Gosh dang, who did kill the chauffeur? <laughs> he doesn't know. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just sort of a gap. I mean, and this right. book, The Long Goodbye, was published in the UK first, and it has yeah. a couple of mistakes in it. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I didn't I need to go back and review, but well, because the American version, they oh. found them. Ah, I see. So the American version, they were edited out. Right. But, um, so I don't know if that's a result of some of the cobbling together of plots that Chandler had done or not. I'm pretty sure he did. I didn't, I don't remember double checking in this, but I think on, I think on all the novels, right. He would grab a, a subplot or the main plot of a short story and turn it into a subplot in the, right, right. In the novel. Okay, so keeping with Gardner's whole thing about the first-person narration, let me just hit a couple other points I noticed. I mean, the Marlowe and one-liners. Yeah, yeah. Trademark. <laughs> I wrote down two. Uh, there's no trap so deadly as the trap you set for yourself. Right. And then this, uh, I love this sentence on page 330. Just this broad brush, biased Totally, okay, I'll just read it. Americans will eat anything if it is toasted and held together <laughs> with a couple of toothpicks and has lettuce sticking out of the sides, preferably a little wilted. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to even back that up. It's just Marlowe <laughs> sounding off. Thanks for telling us how you really feel there. Yeah. You could put that in a meme and put it on Twitter. <laughs> Probably go a long ways with that. He's just... He's, he's just in he's, a bad mood. Yeah, he just types out the sentence, firing it off. Yeah. Yeah. But that's part of what makes the book fun to read. So if, if I guess if we're talking to writers and you're doing a first-person speaker, maybe it doesn't hurt to have, lay in a few of those. Yeah, it's just, it, I guess, I think the reason I always avoid first-person is because if, if if I don't, one thing Marlowe does, one thing Chandler is able to do is he's able to keep those one-liners to Marlowe. And I wouldn't be able to do that. I would just be throwing them out all over the place. Everybody would get a damn one-liner just because, well, you know, within the context, that would, well, maybe not, you know. And that, I admire that kind of self-control. <laughs> he does manage to make them stand out rather than just flood the book with them. Yeah. Yeah. So when he does throw one out there, it hits. So and okay, so what about Marlowe's ability to penetrate the unseen? Are we interested in that? Is that one of the reasons we're following Marlowe around? I don't know. You know, there's this sense that he's gonna get he's gonna do it. Right. Whatever's going on in this plot or this uh I think it might need you to explain to me the penetrate the unseen thing a little bit more. Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. Let's talk about Lennox then. Uh-huh. And 
the original setup, which is Marlowe sort of being the with his code. He just helps Lennox along, and soon enough we're drawn into this murder plot. Right. And on the surface, Lennox does look... I mean, if you're just a normal person that's not used to this kind of stuff, when Lennox shows up at your door and his wife's been murdered and we find out that she was sleeping around, mm-hmm. he does rather look like he could be the culprit. Right. But Marlowe doesn't really buy off on it. He, he makes an assessment about Lennox's personality and he just doesn't see him that way. Mm-hmm. So even with all the cops, the cops are putting a fist in Marlowe. I mean, they're beating him up. Yeah. And he's got the big guy, Potter, perpetrating the whole narrative. The papers are good with it. Silencing the whole story, yeah. Nobody but Marlowe disagrees with this thing. And, you know, he decides he doesn't agree with it, even though Lennox skipped town and tried to get away. So the rest of the book is about Marlowe trying to uncover what really happened. I guess right. by the unseen, I mean then, what are people disguising about what they've done and who they really are? Right, right. And whatever that is, he's going to be able to unmask it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it because um, there's never a pullback where he stops and talks about, I was going to stay on the case until I figured out exactly what had happened to Terry. He never right. says that. We get like, you know, three days went by and then this happened. Right. But I think we are stuck with him and we have this sense that he's, you know, it it may take a year or a couple years, but he's not someone who's ever just going to drop something and let it go away. Mm -hmm. Particularly when it involved somebody that he liked. He has this positive, I mean, the whole novel springs out of his attachment to Lennox in a way. So I think part of part of what you're saying there, and part of why it's it's an accurate way to, to to frame it, is that one of the reasons we stay with the book is because we have a sense that he's not going to let this go. Right. There's a. It's it's interesting that it, that Marlowe has a, a certain depth of empathy and intuition, two things that you know you don't normally associate with a hard-boiled detective, but that's the thing that seems to drive him the most is this sense of, of this able to you know connect empathetically to, to in particular, Terry Lennox. And yeah. in a lot of it's intuition. He doesn't know squat about Terry except for the drinks he's had. And yeah, he does. So yeah, now I see what you're saying by penetrate the unseen. He's just, it's pure intuition. He's just, uh, yeah. Come. One thing that's been bugging me, what the fuck was in the suitcase? When he puts it in the closet, there talks about it being heavier than what it should normally be. Isn't the suitcase still? What happens to the suitcase? Right, that's like I, that's I like a red herring MacGuffin thing. Um, it, he takes it with him to Mexico, and you never bring it up. It never shows up again. But there was something in the suitcase because Marlowe comments about it being heavier than what you would expect the suitcase to be. Was well, it, we never find out? Do we? Uh-uh. Was it the gun? Seems like there's something that involves planning. Was it money? Was it because he didn't want anything to do with it? Marlowe made him take it. Those five thousand dollar bills wouldn't weigh that much. <laughs> but it could be money. Of them. But maybe you wouldn't want to carry around a whole bunch of those. So maybe he's got stacks of right. ones in there. I don't know. I, I the but port- it was you call you know you dig- I mean the portrait of Madison. Please. I yeah. Mean. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> portrait of Madison. Portrait of Madison. Maybe the suitcase was what was used to kill the chauffeur in the big sleep. <laughs> that's, that's why we had to tuck that away. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I thought it was interesting, though, that he dumped the keys, you know, behind the wall and, you know, to Lennox's car. And it's just kind of... There's, there's part of me that's going, you could... Take, you could take the abandoned things from Raymond Chandler novels and write your own novel. You can. <laughs> I like it. It's been a while since I read uh, John Banville's, or Benjamin Black's, I should say. I think I need to go back and read it, but I think he actually does pick up with the suitcase in The Black-Eyed Blonde. Oh, so that's a, a sort of a sequel? That... Yeah, he comes back with it. Huh. He circles back. I think ben, uh, Benjamin Black picked up on the very question that you've raised right. in the black eyed blonde. And Interesting. he stitches, stitches it into the, to his a, a pigskin suitcase. Yes. Interesting. It comes up. 
Huh. What was I it? can't remember precisely what. It's been a few years since I read that book. Okay. <laughs> we may have to. I'll, I'll try to report on it later. Take it. So Banville's going to tell us what was in the pigskin suitcase. There's a narrative there. Right. Yep. <laughs> so that your point is totally valid. Yeah. yeah. And the bigger point that Chandler's known for not having the most well-executed plots as far as a mystery story goes. Right. And, I, and I've run across fans of the mystery genre who have not liked Chandler for that very but reason. Isn't that more realistic that there would be a lot of loose ends and unanswered things? I mean, if, to tie everything up in a neat and tidy bow seems rather fantastical. Yeah, that's a good you point. It's, mean, it's both more literary because who really cares about the plot in the end anyway? I mean, we're not in this to actually sort out a plot. We're in it to, right. for bigger questions. But ironically, then in the end, yeah, I think it is more a realistic. I mean, how uh, an actual case goes is, is uh, there could be a whole handful of things that fall through the cracks. Right. So have any of you read, because um, I didn't get around to reading it. I didn't find out about it until, you know, this morning that uh, Chandler had an essay in a book. The, was it The Deadly Art of Murder? Have yeah, you read that? Something like that. Where he talks Final about, you know, realism kind of, and... Yeah. and down these mean streets, a man must go. I forget I've read it too. Yeah. And so yeah, it'd be interesting to pick that up and take a look at it and see what, because it does sound, I managed to read like the first, you know, page and a half. Um, and I wish I'd found it earlier and, and been more on the ball with getting uh, Chandler read. Todd and I were both talking about this earlier that we finished it last night. It's like we gave ourselves three weeks and we're off here still just farting around. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> He actually has a fairly sizable body of of critical. Right. I don't know if sizable. He's he yeah, there's essays out there floating around. That one's the most famous, but he's I think he said quite a bit about the genre. And about realism too, about yeah. didn't he? Because I think that's what it went off on. Right. I mean, I read a little summary and he was quite critical of, of British mysteries, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and stuff like that, and about how there's <clears throat> you know, this this uh lack of reality to it. You have these exceptional people that have these, you know, outsized, you know, gifts, you know, Holmes is a, you know, deductive reasoning skill that just surpasses everybody's, you know, can notice the tiny little thing on the collar and that's the whole key to, right, sure, whatever. You know, they're fun, but he's definitely got a, seems to have a critical eye of them. And it's interesting when you think about what you said about Marlowe having, uh, a sense of intuition, uh, uh, connecting to people on a human level that's beyond what you could put into logic. Mm-hmm. He, the first time he sees Lennox, for some reason, he feels drawn to him. Even He even says uh, in that first chapter, I think a couple of times, that he's not really sure why, or he thinks you know, he probably should just say the heck with it and let this drunk go by the wayside. Yeah, he does have that whole part where he says, I should have just run the other way and never stopped. And- Here I might, I might suggest, you know, he points out that Lennox's manners, if he wasn't from England, he, he had the, the manners of an Englishman. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. not the exact quote. But I do, I hate to do it, but I have to go back to Gilkes, you know, and, and Chandler's early training. <laughs> Number two was Englishness. Right. So Marlowe likes those, likes Lennox's manners for one thing. He's a rogue, but he's a rogue with manners. Yeah. And this is, I think we talked about this before. This is the only novel that doesn't start with a case. And I would have to go double check, so it could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure all the other ones... We're 30 or 40 pages in before the... Right? Yes. The others all start with somebody comes into the office or he's, you know, been called somewhere on a case. This one, the whole first part of the book, is just Marlowe happens to be out at this club and see this guy and... Yeah, yeah, you don't get anybody to try to hire him until Eileen Wade comes in with... Right, or actually it's the publisher at first. Oh, that's oh, right, yeah. 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 But and, it's and that's contrived, isn't it? I mean, isn't Eileen, if I'm getting the plot right, she's, she's essentially... So all of this actually comes out of his meeting with Lennox. Every, even if they're cobbled together short stories, right. he's sewn them together to where it yeah. all goes back to that meeting right. with Lennox. Well, it's, so truth to tell, as you guys were doing this thing, did you think it was Eileen all along? No. No, I didn't. I didn't uh, know where we were going. I, I didn't know where we were going either. I thought it was Wade that just got drunk and went down there. And yeah, and this is like the second time I've read it, and I me too. And I was like, but it'd been I so forgot. long that I'm like, going, oh yeah, 
I'm with you. I had read it a long time ago, and so I forgot how it worked out exactly. I, yeah. I, knew, I remembered that Lennox comes back at the end. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Back to my point that it's not the plot is not the reason we read this book. Even though there's an interesting plot and we could, you know, sit here and talk about it. Right. It's the thing that, that stays is the Marlowe's character and his right. critique of society and his place in society and, and not so much who done it. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe that maybe that as a writer is is the way to approach it. You you I think if you overplot a mystery novel, then it can become predictable. I, that's I like my that opinion. Point. Having, I mean, my my mystery detective novel reading is limited. That's why we're having these conversations. But what I mean, you guys read more of this. I mean, those overplotted guys are they predictable? I don't give a damn about plot. <laughs> I'm not saying anything bad against the mystery fans who, right. who do. If that's your thing, that's great. But I, I personally, you know, just don't care. I think that it's fun if you have a good plot and mm-hmm. it can't hurt one little bit to have a good plot, especially in a detective novel. Right. What can it hurt? You might as well give yourself every chance you, every chance you can. But the things that we decided to talk about this afternoon were, you know, Marlowe's delivery, his his tone, you know, his ability. Mm-hmm. I haven't even said it yet. He's a good describer. Marlowe's a very yeah. good, he's a yeah. very good describer. Yeah. Well, I appreciate and all of those things. Yeah. Matter a lot. He's definitely mastered a certain art to, uh, to describing people that doesn't, well, there are some writers that do it and they have certain crutches that they use. They have certain things that they do. Um, where you're like going, that's, that's the wrong kind of specific that I need to imagine this character. But when Chandler gets done, and he's usually got a very detailed description. They mm-hmm. had this and this and this and this, this. But yet, and I'm like going, well, that's pretty good. You throw some half-assed hack in there who does that, you know, say like uh, my favorite nemesis, Dan Brown. And <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> you know, that doesn't tell me anything unique about this character. Poor you've Dan just Brown. basically, you've basically given me a driver's license <laughs> description of somebody. Six foot one, brown hair, gray at the temples, blue eyes. Bleh. It's like, okay, fine. That's, you know, any thousands of people out there. Chandler gets done with describing somebody and, you know, he waxed, what was it? I wish I had marked the page. It was like, there's like half a page where he just waxes, you know, nostalgic, romantic, you know, has an epiphany when I, when it's, uh, it's Talking Eileen Wade. Eileen's first appearance. Or yeah. Well, okay. What about, I like this. And this is a bit of a step back too. There are blondes and blondes. It is almost a right. joke word nowadays. <laughs> all blondes, all blondes have their points, except perhaps the metallic ones who are as blonde as a Zulu under the bleach and as to disposition as soft as a sidewalk. <laughs> he goes on for about yeah, two more that's paragraphs. Great, right? That is, that is, yeah. Yeah, so I he, mean, right, we're into this descriptive power where he's, it's like the sandwich that I mentioned earlier. He's just throwing in this, it's his tone and it's his outlook <clears throat> being mixed into the description. Right, right. Perhaps. Yeah, his, his descriptions definitely have a point of view. Right. Um, from, yeah. you know, it, his his opinions about the world and about people come out in those descriptions, whereas mm-hmm. most writers don't. If they if they go into that if they try to go into that di- kind of detail, it's just flat, just nothing there. Right. Yeah. That's impressive. I'd like to master that, but I don't think I can. It is because you're right. It's across the board. It's not just physical description or details about a character. It's when he starts to lay out an opinion, a criticism of society, that it seems to be always something striking, even though he's just talking about women and their personalities and appearances in a way that a lot of other writers have done in a really inferior way. So the, the last kind of step back that Marlowe excels at is uh, when, when he needs to step back and do mood. Mm. In other words, we're at the end of a traumatic episode or something, and he goes home and he's reflecting. And then you get these... Here's a here's a mood step back, let's call it. I was as hollow and empty as the spaces between the stars. When I got home, I mixed a stiff one and stood by the open window in the living room and sipped it 
and listened to the groundswell of the traffic on Laurel Canyon Boulevard and looked at the glare of the big angry city hanging over the shoulder of the hills through which the boulevard had been cut. Far off the banshee wail of police or fire sirens rose and fell, never for very long completely silent. 24 hours a day somebody is running, somebody else is trying to catch him. Out there in the night of a thousand crimes, people were dying, being maimed, cut by flying glass, crushed against steering wheels or under heavy tires. People were being beaten, robbed, strangled, raped, and murdered. People were hungry, sick, bored, desperate with loneliness or remorse or fear, angry, cruel, feverish, shaken by sobs. A city no worse than others, a city rich and vigorous and full of pride, a city lost and beaten, and full of emptiness. Yep. Yeah, that one stuck. So a mood step back, right. but but a good one again. Yep. Yeah. So you know, it's it's real easy to see to kind of loop this back to uh, to Paul's uh, you know breakdown of, of the types of detectives that we started off with. This kind of you know that's an obvious existential moment, right? But this whole book is is predicated. This whole story that he tells here is is the personal. So you know, we're, with that blending is, and it seems that we're suggesting that this blending of these two types of, of detective story is what kind of gives this the power. It's, it's this personal journey that Marlowe goes on, but he's having this big existential overhang on it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say I feel like this is is a little more complex in that sense than the big sleep. I still think the big sleep is, is sort of the core novel, uh, as a, as a you know, hard boiled novel. Right. This has that little extra layer of the personal, which I don't know if that's, if that's Marlowe is, uh, older and he has sort of developed, honed his style and he is what he is. And so this personal element comes into the right. play more strongly. Um, or if it's just Chandler being more literary. I mean, he's been writing these novels for, for, for 10 years. This is the sixth or seventh yep. one, and he's just doing more stuff with it. I mean, I don't remember, you know, some of the, the techniques he uses pulling in the documents. We have Wade's typed drunk note yeah. that he wrote. I Why mean, those are just... sort of interesting yeah. elements to, to add, and I don't know that he does that any... Where else, Chandler? But why did why, why did, did he destroy it? That's one thing that I've kind of always puzzled. I've yeah. been puzzling about is why did he destroy? The I don't note? remember what juncture he does that, but the the idea at one point is that after it's, Wade it's, shoots him, or after Wade is dead, he destroys the note. That it's read the right way, the note could indicate that Wade was guilty, or at least is consistent with Wade have, having done something. Because doesn't the note talk about? A good man died. A good right. man died for him, or yeah, which he thinks Lennox took the fall for his murder. Well, he doesn't know if he killed, but he thinks he did. Why does when Wade knows that he didn't do it, or does Wade know? I don't think Wade did? ever. I think Wade. He knows well, that it was either him or <laughs> I guess Wade knows that he either did it or his wife did it. And since right. Wade is such a blackout drunk, he doesn't know for sure if he did it or not. Does he have any idea that Eileen might have done it? Maybe he does. I didn't I think, think that. Well, I th- I thought as I as we came to the end of the book that Marlowe feels that Wade had warmed up mm. to the idea that it was likely his wife. Maybe. But we're not it's we're not sure because we don't know what Wade thought. Yeah. Ultimately, why did if if Wade didn't know, then why did she kill him? Jealousy, rage, anger, the fact that he could easily surmise, not easily, but Fear. would would surmise at some point. That he would surmise might be it. She I mean, didn't. certainly he was a pain in the keister, but that's not a good enough reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she she got to just like killing. <laughs> yeah. Done it once, might as well do it again. It had been a couple of weeks since she offed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was Eileen was really a serial killer, you know. So we didn't know that part. No, there is to, to one of the other things that I that kind of puzzled me, and this is kind of just me as the writer thinking about you know how you know you develop characters and get them into situations. Um, 
one, I don't understand why he kissed Eileen Wade at the party. And two, I don't understand why um, uh, Lennox's um, sister-in-law ends up going to bed with him at, oh, at the end of the book. She, Loring, why she... Loring. Yeah. He ends up marrying her uh, in a couple of books. Oh, he does? Yeah. Marlo does? Yeah. She comes back at the end of playback. Oh, wow. See, you've ruined playback. Oh, God, I'm sorry. We're going to delete this. There's all kinds of spoiler alerts. I think think people will be fine because I've read playback myself. I just, it's been so long ago, I don't remember the story. She's not a big part of it. It's just, and and I don't don't remember the exact context, but the ending of that book is playback, and that's his last one that he actually finished, is radically different because she shows up and it has a quasi-positive ending because he's got lady around who he's interested in and then in Poodle Springs they're married he started Poodle Springs and died and then Robert B. Parker finished Finished it it. and and yeah yeah Linda Loring's his wife in that I haven't read Poodle Springs since 1991 or two and so we need to say nothing else about that but their 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 banter does not seem to me to be at all you know romantic it's snarky it's kind of there's always this comment about don't be mean or don't be cruel and the next thing you know they're they're in bed together, and I don't understand that. Um, <laughs> how that dynamic? Do you, as as a writer, I mean, it's 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 mm-hmm. it's interesting from a from a noir kind of oh, so that's how you get the girl. But that wouldn't like work in real life. The first time you said something cruel to a woman, the last thing she's going to do is drop her panties. The, so I'm just the, you don't want the incels <laughs> to be reading this book. I think take, they take have. Your, take your, I think they have been, and that's their problem. They think that's how it works oh, okay. because I just. Yeah, I wonder what, maybe it was the time, maybe it was the era, but I just don't see how Chandler got her in bed. I mean, Chandler, I don't see how Marlo got her in bed. (laughs) I think she got him in bed, too. I think she, was she there in the bar that first night on purpose, or first afternoon? Oh, where she's all in green? They both drank a a gimlet. Was that part of somehow this... She's hanging out there too because she knows that. Yeah, I think she had had him. The, my my inclination. I don't know. This isn't. I don't think proved out anywhere in the story. She was having him tailed, or she had known something about yeah. what. It's no coincidence Terry was that doing. they. Right, but once she think, sees him, she seems to be totally engaged. I mean, they sit down and they have, and that's a pretty a pretty feisty exchange even there that first encounter. Yeah. So there's obviously some sort of chemistry between them from the right. beginning. But it comes out as antagonism, and I and I'm trying to grab. I'm kind of picking up on that, though, and I'm thinking maybe that's a theme that runs through some of the other books with Marlowe. It seems like he's always there's always a, a female character that he kind of has a banter with at the very least, and then it ends up becoming something for a while. Sternwood. It just seems to be his thing. But I don't know if, if, if there's a counter to the... Uh, <laughs> if there's a way to explain it, I suppose it would just be right. that she comes to, like, his chutzpah. He, it's a proving ground in a sense. He he's the right. only one that will will ride it out against the various forces that are trying to tamp this thing about yeah, Lennox. Yeah, yeah. he and stood so, up to the cops. He stood up to the bad guys. He stood up to her father. Yes, you know. And so and, maybe she likes that. And yet he's, she he's doesn't not really a, say that though, right? And then maybe she likes the fact that he stands up to her and won't let her get away with stuff. With that, maybe that's what that snarky, you know. Right. He sasses her about that too because at one point. Well, he points out that, and he puts it on rich people. He says, "You rich people, you know, it's like you sass me, and I, and then I give you a little change, and I'm, and all of a sudden I'm being out of line." <laughs> or you know, yeah. that's earlier. That's in one of their earlier fights. But one right. of the other things that that I talk that I noticed in this book is that, and I suppose it comes back to the code that we talked about earlier, and. And Paul's had some good stuff. You guys have both had some good stuff about this. But my question is, what do you actually have to do to get this guy paid? What do you have to do to get Marlo to accept? <laughs> what does he live on? What does he live on? <laughs> he refused. No, but who pays yeah, him in this thing? Yeah, he puts a $5,000 bill in the safe and, and, and $300 out of the coffee can in the safe and leaves it alone. He won't spend that. He won't let Lennox pay him. 
several people try to Wade tries to pay him, and Wade doesn't get him paid either. So does he? Does he have money saved back from a previous story? Is that what the deal is? I I think that the. I was thinking along those same lines because I kind of thought about those categories I'd come up with, how they actually don't really cover financial gain as a motive. I mean, if you're, I think I said this, you know, someone's in it for the, for their duty to their job, right. some sort of personal angle or the existential angle. Some people could just be in it for the money. Absolutely. And, and I think that by him going, Chandler going out of his way to show Marlowe not being in it for the money, it, that's deliberate. I mean, I think you're picking up on something there that, that seems to be wanting to send a message. Right. It's worth noting, when I went through Heine's biography again, getting ready for this, Chandler's agent, on reading a draft of The Long Goodbye, told Chandler that Marlowe was getting to be too Christ-like. <laughs> huh. And he, he wanted him, I suppose, to redo part of it, or he just felt like, and I think we're speaking to it right now, the guy, you know, what is he out there getting his head knocked for? And yeah. I mean, I suppose it, it comes through with the existential and these these uh, things that we've already talked about. He kind of explains that after the seg- segment with the cops. You know, his it's not about you know this code. He says it's about the fact that this is my business, and if people think I'm going to just roll over easy on my on my clients, they're not going to hire me. Right. Mm-hmm. He tells Oles, is it Oles? He yeah. tells him, I was in this to to. An innocent man to prove an, an, that an innocent man, I forget how he says it. In other words, he wants to prove that Lennox didn't do it. Right. And he was going to take the hit for him. Um, so I, maybe that's why he doesn't take the money. You know, I come back to this whole thing that, that comes from Chandler's childhood, too, at, at Dulwich College. Once again, we're back to honor. Right. The sense of honor. And I would say we're into something that's literary because he's not, he's not, doesn't, Chandler doesn't seem to be as worried about that notion of realism there. I've got a symbolic message, a collection of symbols I'm putting together here. And, and I, if there was an earlier draft that was more Christ-like or just the... He went back through it after he fired the agent, by the way. <laughs> he did go back through the manuscript and he struck out some of what were, there were some preachier lines in there that Chandler did get rid of. Right. He, he set out to write it this way. That's why I think it's a, it's a little more of, a, of a, a literary project in trying to pull off this creation of a knight character mm-hmm. in a hard-boiled L.A. novel. Right. And, yeah, he probably went overboard at some point, but that's a literary impulse and not a, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sell you a, a, a cool, violent plot that you're going to want to buy. Right. So he's having, he's having a meta argument with, uh, with Roger Wade. <laughs> then. Right. <laughs> I happen to notice that, oddly enough, that the only time that the, the word literary is used in the novel, it only comes up in sort of negative context. Really? It's like, yeah, like it comes up I like four that. times. Three of them, one of them is just an innocuous comment, and well, two of them are Wade, and one is the term is literary prostitute, and the other is, oh, this is too literary. Uh-huh. And the other time it comes up is, is towards the end with Endicott when he, when he first reads the, <laughs> you know, the letter that's supposedly, well, it's a little literary. So right. the word literary only shows up in negative context yet, in the novel. Yet Wade kind of hates himself, at least in part, because he's... He's a bit of a hack. Right. He's not literary enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it seems a tension. And you got what, Amos, the chauffeur? I think he's a chauffeur. And they're tra- talking about T.S. Eliot. Rock. Oh, yeah. You know? So there's just this real self I really loved how he brought that back in, too. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy's just quoting lines and somehow worked. <laughs> yeah. And... Marlowe, the cops, and irreverence. So Marlowe has this code. He's the romantic. Right. He's honorable, yet he's, he's got this irreverent quality about him, too. And, you know, he, gets, he does get dusted up pretty good by the police early on in the book, but he's been battered around throughout this whole series. When, right. doesn't, get, when doesn't Marlowe get pummeled by the cops in one of these books? <laughs> No Blue Lives Matter stuff here. For right. Yeah. 
Well, should we point out that you, you actually pulled a, a line yeah, out to, was, to, that was my, uh, my to tweet quote. about... There are places in the world where, where cops aren't hated, but you wouldn't be a cop. Yeah. <laughs> but in those places, you wouldn't be a cop, says that yeah. to uh, um, that detective that punched him in the face. So. Yeah. Right, and, the, and he keeps coming with these digs. On page 338, cops never say goodbye. They're always hoping to see you again in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Let's not forget the last, last line of the book. Of the book. Yeah. We get a we get a nice we get another dig at the cop. Yeah. I mean, he saved it for the last yeah. line of the book, and yet the whole thing is so melodious too because he brings the word back goodbye. I never saw any of them again except the cops. No way has yet been invented to say goodbye to them. Right. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have. Not all of his cops are bad. You know, I mean, Oles is, is it seems to be a True. decent cop, um, and Hernandez, who does his interview, seems to be a decent cop. But True. You know, the uh, the L.A. police and the, and the sheriff that uh, <laughs> I'm too I'm too grounded in 2018, I guess. But I mean, I, I always ask myself, okay, if you're getting battered by these guys, why don't you go hire a lawyer at the end and take take them to court, make it public that you got beat up. <laughs> But the novel just doesn't want to ask that question, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe you couldn't do that in 1945. I'm sure you could, though. Maybe it just went without saying. Yeah. Everybody's talking about, wow, Marlo, you were, you were in the jail for three days. They, they know he got beat up right. for three days. Maybe. Sounds good. <clears throat> Think we're good? I have one other interesting thing to throw yeah. out that sort of ties in with that in terms of the cops. We know that he is, that, that, that uh, Marlowe is critical of this uh, rich culture mm-hmm. in, this, in this little gated community. And we know he's critical of the sort of sham that is uh, Hollywood culture and L.A. culture. Right. He also goes off at one point of, uh, you know, on, uh, good old real Americans, too. There's that passage... Um, where he he talked he ends with I'll take this sordid, dirty, crooked city. I mean that it that seems to me that that in the book Marlowe is across the board social critic, and so he's really not letting anyone off the hook. So the oh, fact that there oh, are cops he says getting he could have stayed back yeah, home. Yeah, and let me find that. Being the hardware store manager. In, yeah, and it's really right. it's really kind of mean spirited in a good way. <laughs> But no, it's perfect. I mean, I, well, I relate to it just real personal because I, you know, live live in, in among real Americans and hear how phony everything is in L.A. And I'm like, well, shoot, I'd take L.A. any day. I know. Well, sounds like fun. Uh, I would have stayed in the town where I was born and worked in the hardware store and married the boss's daughter and had five kids and read them the funny paper on Sunday morning and smacked their heads when they got out of line and squabbled with the wife about how much spending money they were to get and what programs they could have on the radio or TV set. I might have even got rich, small town rich, an eight-room house, two cars in the garage, chicken every Sunday and the Reader's Digest on the living room table, the wife with a cast iron permanent and me with a brain like a sack of Portland cement. You take (laughs) it, friend. I'll take the big, sordid, dirty, crooked city. Yeah. And that's an amazing statement for someone who's basically just spent a lot of the novel, you know, that passage you read where he's looking over the city and thinking how horrible it is. It's horrible, right. but I guess I'll stay here. Yeah. Oh, me too. I'll take the city over to yeah. that. Seems almost you're damned if you do and damned if you don't with Chandler. I mean, <laughs> he, he, took a, he took a swipe at the Brits when he came back over on the steamer. What was yeah. it? Cigarette coughs? Yeah. And didn't he wind up later in life back in England and pretty pretty disen, disenchanted with England as well, like, you know. Seems, sounds right. Sounds right. All right. Yeah. It's a good talk, guys. So, in three weeks, we're doing Megan Abbott and Charles Williford. So we're doing Abbott's uh, Die a Little and Williford's The Woman Chaser. This one's going to be our, our, our dirtier one, right? This is our, this is our right. war and our crime section. Yes, I mean, we talked about it in the first episode that with the hardcore noir, which is where we're going when these next two books 
one way to think about it. I said Terry Lennox a couple of weeks ago. In other words, it's one of the characters rather than Marlowe telling the tale. Right. Yeah, this would be something like Mendes somebody who's Mendes more. Or, right. Yeah. Somebody who's got a racket on the side or in the background doing the crime, but. The transgressor, yeah. as it were. But still trying to figure something out and find a. Yeah, right. yeah. All right. Good, good, good going, guys. This was fun. The Outrider Podcast is hosted by me, Jason Quinn Malott, and produced by Heather Ann Eden. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and go there to please rate us and give us a review, or you can get the show straight from our host, podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.